Today's reading is from Nehemiah 12, 27 through 30, and 44 through 47. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lairs. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nedaphites, and from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Jeba, and the Asmaeths. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. 44. On the day when they were appointed over the storm rooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law of the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaphath, there were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praises and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to church. Um, shameless plug, right after church down on the patio, they have a really good cookout. Uh, I talked talk with Steve. Uh, what he's prepared is pretty amazing. So uh, I'd encourage you to just hang around a little bit and see uh, what's, uh, what's happening after church. So it's good to have you here. Um, today is a, this is a, this is a huge section that we're actually covering. This sermon covers um, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Nehemiah. And some of you might be thinking, well, why would you do so much at one time? Um, the reason is we're getting close to the end of this series, so we have to hurry. Uh, that's not it. That's not really it. Um, the reason is this section is really a remarkable section. Nehemiah is hardly mentioned in it at all. Um, so what you're actually seeing is an amazingly effective leadership model. And so after all this time, after all that's happened, in, it's, it's been nearly 100 years since Zerubbabel was sent back by Cyrus for the first time with that first band of, of captives that he sent back to Jerusalem. And so it's, it, it's been like 93 years. And Israel hasn't done very much. And suddenly you see in these chapters this tipping point. You see this remarkable movement where a, a vision is no longer held just by the leadership. It's a vision that now is held just every bit as passionately by everyone. And now people start undertaking action on their own. And so in that sense, you're seeing something that, that 
all of us read leadership books. We watch TED Talks. We engage in all of this different communication and sometimes even collaboration about what good leadership is. This is good leadership. What you're seeing evidenced and manifested in these chapters is just a remarkable system of leadership. Now, if you look at the most popular quotes on leadership of all time, there's one that will come, if you go home and Google it today, it will always be like in the top 10, this one quote. It was done, it was made by an ancient Chinese philosopher and writer named Lao Tzu. And this is what he said about leadership. And it, I think it's truly remarkable. He said, a leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we, we did it ourselves. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Why would he say that? You see, that is so contrary to what we see in politics. That is so contrary to what most of us have experienced, you know, in the corporate settings or even in academic settings, where you have a person that has to be seen, a person that has to be given all the credit. And you go even to, like, a, a really good treatment of leadership is, is like the second or the third chapter in Jim Collins' book on good to great. And he talks about level five leadership. And a level five leader is a leader that when things go right, he looks out the window uh, to give credit to whoever was involved. And when things go wrong, he looks in the mirror to find out what he could have done, done better. That's not like Lee Iacocca. That's not like a lot of the leaders that we've served under that it's the exact opposite. When something goes right, he looks in the mirror to congratulate himself, and when something goes wrong, he looks for someone to blame. Now, this type of leadership, that quote by Lao Tzu, is, is an amazing quote because it talks about a leadership that you barely know is there. And when everything is accomplished, you actually feel as if you did it yourself. Now, I can't help but believe that this is the essence of what you're seeing in these chapters. You're, you're seeing people take initiative. You're seeing people step into all of these responsibilities. And now the vision that was possessed in Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is now working its way through people, through individuals that are now undertaking these works. Now, Nehemiah, chapter, chapters 9 through 12, they, they give us this look or this insight into this remarkable model of leadership. I want you to consider how this, the ninth chapter starts and take a look at it. It's in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And uh, that just means they threw dirt in the air. Um, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Do you see it? It's in it. It's in those verses. Now you have the commencement and the start of like a, a beat in the heart of the people. And they're starting to take these things on on their own. They're, they're taking initiative. They're becoming... Really, I, I, I think the essence of good leadership is that it causes you to become your best self. It causes you to be engaged. It causes you to be very creative. It causes you to be very enthusiastic. You end up, you realize that you're working harder than you thought you ever, 
ever could. And that's actually what we're beginning to see, this tipping point that Israel is now beginning to hold the vision just as passionately as Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I, I'm a TED Talk freak, if, the, if you haven't captured that over the, over the years. But one of my favorite ones of all time is one that was done by Simon Sinek. He's done a couple of them that are in my top 10, I think. But this one that he considers on leadership, he, he examines this issue of why, why good leaders make us feel safe. In this one particular talk, it's in the notes, but he begins this particular TED Talk by telling the story of Captain William Swenson, who he won the Medal of Honor for his actions on September 8, 2009 in Afghanistan. On that particular day, there was a column of U.S. troops that were attending a number of Afghanistan uh, officials that were meeting with some local village elders. And during that, during that exercise, the, the column of soldiers came under ambush, and they were surrounded on three sides. And it, it, just by sheer coincidence, one of the medevacs had a GoPro mounted on his helmet that day. And, and so uh, he recorded the whole, the whole episode. And what it showed is Swenson going in and out of live fire to bring out the wounded and even the dead. And in this, this one motion, he, he had a, another one of his comrades brings out uh, one of the soldiers that has sustained a, a rifle wound to the neck. And he put him in the medevac. And right as he turned to go back, he, he bent over. He bent over and he kissed the soldier on the head. And so... Cynic's way better at telling the story than I am, but it, it, when Cynic processes that story, this is what he said, which, which I, I think is really remarkable. Cynic said, I saw this, and I, I thought to myself, where, where do people like that come from? What is that? That is some deep, deep emotion. When when he would want to do that. There, there's a love there, and I, I wanted to know why it is that I don't have people that work, that I work with like that. You know, in the military, they give medals to people who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that others may gain, and in business, we give bonuses to people who are willing to sacrifice others so that we may gain. We have it backwards. He says, so I asked myself, where do people like this come from? And my initial conclusion was that they're just better people. That's why they're attracted to the military. These, these better people are attracted to this concept of service. But that's completely wrong. What I learned was that it's the environment. And if you get the environment right, every single one of us has the capacity to do these remarkable things. And more importantly, others have that capacity too. That is remarkable insight. You see, what he's saying would spare most of you years in your lives. Because most of you are looking for the person that has it, whatever that is. 
And it's not so much possessed in a person as much, like he says, in an environment. An environment that becomes so contagious or so inspiring that it compels you to get over yourselves. It compels you to be better as a human being. It compels you to not settle anymore. Now, I think what both Lao Tzu and Simon Sinek are describing is more than leadership. It's more than what we conjure into our minds when we think of leadership because it, it's talking about something that happens deep inside of us, uh, uh, the true meaning of inspiration. And suddenly, we're, we're thinking of what we can do. We're taking ownership. We're engaged in ways that we formerly never thought we could be. Perhaps even years before, when we considered people as engaged as we've become, we, we kind of thought they were lunatics. We're thinking, how, why do they do that? Why do they give so much? Why are they so sacrificial? And it's this, it's leadership. Now, in these, these chapters, they, they, they show a lot, but I think that there's five things that you see that, that emerge from Israel as, as, as an evidence of the leadership. And the, the, first, the first one is, happens all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 5 in its spiritual death, depth, spiritual depth. And it's, I, I think to put it in more natural terms, this is the rare quality of vulnerability. Something had happened in Israel after all that they had seen and heard after all of these years. Something had happened that caused the people to be okay being themselves. Something had happened that made it safe to be a screw-up. You didn't feel like you always were putting on a show. You didn't feel like you always had to cause people to see your best side. And suddenly people were vulnerable. They could talk with each other about even their greatest weaknesses. And I think this is part of the environment that Sinek was referring to. And we see it in chapter 9 and verse 5 when it says, Then the Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so after all of these years where Israel has refused to listen to the prophets that God had mercifully sent them, wave after wave, and they had just either tortured them, killed them, or just ignored them after all those years, Israel now is gathering to worship the Lord. Now what's interesting about this exhortation that's recorded in chapter 9, verse 5, is that it starts horizontal and it snaps into a vertical in the, in the mid-sentence. There's, there's no change and there's no address. It's telling them what to do and suddenly they're addressing God directly. And that's some deep insight. Now, the rest of the ninth chapter is really interesting because it starts by recounting, as you oftentimes see, you see, you see it in the book of Acts with Stephen, where at these significant junctures, there there were people that could stand up and they could recite the history of Israel with remarkable clarity and simplicity. And the ninth chapter moves through 
all of this faithfulness that God had demonstrated to Israel. Then it moves, in its motion, it moves to them actually owning their father's sins. They said, this is what we've done. In spite of all that you've done, this is how we reacted. And then in the last part of chapter 9, it moves to their admission that they're no better than any of them. And so there's this depth, this vulnerability and confession that's all wrapped into this is just kind of oozing out of the nation as they gather. And so this spiritual depth is the first of these five things. The second thing is this renewed or binding commitment to God. And we see that in, in the last verse of chapter 9. It captures it, and you have this kind of a bridge. It's a transition into chapter 10. And it says in verse 38, he said, because of all of this, after all that had been said and done in the nation of Israel, being in this vulnerable condition, he said, because of all of this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so the ninth chapter gives way to a tenth chapter that has this, the obligations of this covenant that they're signing up for. And they've made all the leadership sign it. Now, I don't know about you, but there's always kind of this pucker factor when you come to a closing of a house, or even sometimes even when you buy a car, where you're signing all these papers and you know that you're obligating yourself. You know that there's a bunch of, uh, the devil is in the detail of all those papers that you don't have the time to read them all. But you know you're signing yourself off. You just have that feel. Well, that's what's taking place. The whole 10th chapter is this record of this binding covenant that they're making in writing. And so they make this renewed binding commitment to God. Thirdly, they make this remarkable commitment to sustainability. That's kind of our term today. And you, you see that in the 11th chapter in verse 1 and 2, where it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So the 11th chapter is really Israel stepping back and they're saying, if we don't put people in the city of Jerusalem, all of this is for nothing. It's all going to slip through our fingers. Now, Denver's not like that right now. Denver, Denver for the longest time was a city kind of characterized by sprawl. Because nobody wanted to live downtown. Nobody wanted to spend time down in the older parts of the city. But you see, that's all changed. But it wasn't like that then. Jerusalem was dangerous. All the threats that Nehemiah has recorded through his book of uh, Sanballat and uh, Tobias. You have all these people that are threatening to attack Jerusalem. So no one wanted to be there. And they said, okay, we're going to cast lots. One out of every ten of us is going to agree to go back into the city to live there. And that was an engagement of sustainability. They knew that they could keep this going. It wouldn't die if a few people made the sacrifice to keep it going. And so sustainability was the third thing that you see emerge from the people. The fourth thing that we heard earlier is a celebration. Now, this is an interesting one. It's tricky for me. It's, it's not probably as tricky for some of the rest of you as it is for me. Um, we see it in, in chapter 12 and verse 27 through 30. I took out 
all the difficult names because I wanted Joe to read those. Um, it said, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they, they sought the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. See, they didn't want to live there. He said, and the, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. And so what you have here is this remarkable celebration. I'm, I'm going to show you a verse that kind of captures it here in just a moment. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Now, the reason I was saying what I said earlier about me kind of struggling with this, back in 2007 when I first started coaching, I, I was on the board of directors with Acts 29, and they were paying and for a bunch of us to be certified all at one time. And in this coaching model that I was initially exposed to, you had to celebrate wins. And I don't know about you, but the whole self-esteem movement has kind of screwed with my mind a little bit. Um, because I, I, we don't need participation ribbons. I personally think that most of us over-celebrate. And so I didn't do it. And about half of the way through the training model, my coach told me, he said, you're actually really turning into a good coach, but there's one problem. And I said, well, what's that? He said, you, you don't celebrate enough. And I said, I know, I've chosen not to do that. He said, you can't. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, coaching is so intense that you're pushing a person into a part of her life or his life in such a way that without celebrating it, there's no counterbalance and you'll push them to despair. And that's exactly what started happening. I wasn't taking enough time to take coaching to people I was coaching and point them to the progress they were making. Not in an artificial way, it wasn't just participation ribbons, it was just forcing them to see, okay, you're not stuck. You're actually making progress. Look at what you've done. Look at how far we've come together. And I had to really teach myself how to celebrate. But something's happening here that is truly remarkable. After all that's happened, the nation of Israel creates this party that really, really, like I said, was a big deal. Um, the priests and Levites, they gather and they perform, they actually perform their duty. They purify themselves, they purify the people, and they purify the gates and the wall, in verse 30. And and then one of the rare mentions of Nehemiah in these four chapters, it, Nehemiah himself gathers the leaders of Judah and he puts them on the top of the wall. And he, he organizes two great choirs. And they start at the far part of the wall and they go, they're walking on the wall, these great choirs, and they go in opposite directions until they end at the temple. And they're singing all the while. This is, a, this is really a big deal. Now, when Nehemiah records the celebration, this is what he says in verse 43 of chapter 12. He says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What he just said is that their celebration was divinely inspired. 
Now, I think all of us need to admit, I've, I've kind of caught on to this. I'm, in some ways, I'm a slow learner. So, but over the last couple of years, I've learned how to pray differently at like wedding receptions. Because those are times that are prescribed for you to celebrate. For you to go and not celebrate is wrong. It's sinful. There's times that as Christians we should let our hair down, those of us that have hair, and we should be totally down with celebrating, but we're not. There's something that has crept into this that has made us too conservative. It's caused us to say, well, good Christians don't do that. That's nonsense. We are. And this is a divinely inspired celebration. And so the people undertake this amazing celebration. That brings us to the fifth and the final thing. And it's their resourcing or their giving. Now, I'm going to step on some of your toes here with this one, but let me first read the verse. Um, And then you can wonder how I got all this out of that. Um, In... In verse 47, it says, And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So the, the Levites, the, the tribe of Levi was a tribe that was set aside to the work of the, of the tabernacle and the temple. But the sons of Aaron were the priests. And so the Levites had to take care of the priests, and the rest of the people had to take care of the Levites. But you see, they're doing all of that. There's this, this is kind of an extension of the sustainability, but it's this remarkable thing that these people are undertaking an, an awareness of what they needed to do to keep it going, but they're actually doing it. They're providing the manpower as well as the money to keep it going. Now, I personally believe that volunteering and giving of their resources to support the ministry was actually a direct result of their belief in what they were doing. I I, I don't think this is a cause of good leadership. I think this is the result of good leadership. They believed in it, and they couldn't bear the thought of it not continuing any longer. It had been too much. They'd sat on their hands for 93 years. They were back in Jerusalem, and they never quite got it done. 93 years. It had been 14 years since Ezra, this brilliant scribe, leads a second wave back, and they don't get it done. Nehemiah goes there. In a little over 50 days, they get the wall done. And they're celebrating. They are, like, besides themselves because finally they've stopped postponing. Finally they stopped procrastinating. But in the midst of it, it says they were giving. Now, Let me ask you this question. What should that look like today? What does it look like for you to say, I get it. This vision that once was possessed in the heart of a few people, not only do I understand it, I believe in it. Because you you see, in 25 years, I I don't know for sure how to answer that question. I don't know what it looks like. Because... The Bible is really clear about its instructions about how you give. And God said, look, I dare you to test me in this. Give me 10% of what you make. Not 10% of your net, 10% of your gross. And you live on the rest and see how it works out. And there are some of you in this room, the reason you're Christians is that you actually did this. You actually figured it out. You said, okay, 
I'm going to figure out whether this is nonsense or whether this is real. And you actually started to set aside a portion of your, your income. Now, there's some of you, you know the easiest, the easiest budget you can set up for your family is 10% to the ministry, 10% to savings, and you live on the rest of the 80. Simple. It's 80-10-10. Now, the reason I bring this up is not only is it in this text, and the Scripture talks about this. It talks about how we're supposed to give. But you see, when I grew up, the reason I don't understand this very well is that as I grew up, I despised pastors and churches that always talked about money. I hated it. When I went to seminary, I, can, I committed before the Lord, and I said, I'm not going to talk about money all the time. And those of you that have been here for a long time, you know that I barely talk about it. And any time that we have a shortfall, there's a lot of discussion saying, well, maybe we're not teaching enough about it. And it's like, I'm guilty. I'm guilty because I hated it. I hated it. I grew up in a church that there was like 10 or 15 minutes in the middle of every service where they would just recant. It was just like, it was terrible. It, just, it was just pleading for money all the time. You see, the problem I had is what's in this, these verses. And that's the problem I've got when our giving drops. Because what does it say about what you all believe about this ministry? See, I don't think people that believe in ministry need to be prodded to give. I don't think they need to be goaded all the time. Or your commitment just kind of drops off. It wanes because you need a new bicycle. That would be like my deal. Because I, I think in the end of the day, we either believe in something or we don't. Let me show this to you in, in some ways. Now, in 2016, we had basically 176 contributing units. Now, that's not individuals. That's like families or people. And that's not, okay, when we have 200 people in the room, 176 give, it's not that either. It's like over the whole course of the year, we received money from 176 different units. Essentially, year-to-date in 2017, it's exactly the same. Now, consider these statistics. 90% of our income comes from 24% of these people. 43 of those, just 90% of it comes from 43 giving units. 50% of our income comes from 9%, 16. 16, 50% of all of our bills get paid by 16 contributing units. That is heart-wrenching to me. I've counseled more than 16. I spend time, and the rest of our ministry meets the needs of more than 16 people. This last one is perhaps the most shocking. 60%, 106 of the contributors are donating less than a cable or internet bill per month. And this group's total 60%, it, total giving, is 10% of our top line. So I ask you, do you believe? The book of Nehemiah captures a group of people. We can miss it. You read over it. And they believed it. They provided the manpower. They provided the money to keep it going because it was unconscionable for it to end. And so that, that bears the question, do you really believe? Do you believe in what we're doing? Do you know what we're doing? See, if you don't know it, I don't know how you could believe it, but 
if you know it, I don't know how you wouldn't. I really don't. I want to close with a, uh, a quote from David Foster Wallace. This is, this is from a book. It's considered the lobster in other essays. He always had kind of strange titles. But listen to what he wrote about leadership. Let this kind of sink in. He said, obviously, a real leader isn't just somebody who has ideas you agree with, nor is it just somebody you happen to believe is a good guy. Think about it. A real leader is somebody who because of his own particular power and charisma and example, is able to inspire people, with inspire being used here in a serious and non-cliché way. A real leader can somehow get us to do certain things that deep down we think are good and want to be able to do but usually can't get ourselves to do on our own. It's a mysterious quality, hard to, to, hard to define, but we always know it when we see it, even as kids. If you've ever spent time in the military, you know how incredibly easy it is to tell which of your superiors are real leaders and which aren't, and how little rank has to do with it. A leader's real authority is a power you voluntarily give him, and you grant him this authority not with resentment or resignation, but happily. It feels right. Deep down, you almost always like how a real leader makes you feel. The way you find yourself working harder and pushing yourself and thinking in ways you couldn't ever get to on your own. In other words, a real leader is somebody who can help us overcome the limitations of our own individual laziness and selfishness and weakness and fear and get us to do better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. That's pretty insightful. I don't know that there's a single thing in that that I, do, I don't agree with. You, you see, leadership is just basically a quality that appears in our lives from time to time and inspires us to be better people. I hope in the future that we're able to do this. I really do. I hope those of you that have put your hands to the plow of this ministry will continue to do so with tremendous vigor and tremendous inspiration. We have a lot of work to do, and it's not going to be done easily. Okay, thank you. I'll take a few questions, I'll be done. That's fine. Anybody want to ask any? Would just not near as anonymous, is it? <laughs> I think it'd be no questions every week if we did it that way. So. I don't know. I hope that made sense. I hope I stepped on the right toes. Um, there, there's something tragic. I, I can remember back when we had a, we had a, a pretty, a pretty well-experienced uh, man that was running running, he was kind of like our XP for a while, and he wanted us to move to the suburbs and build like a $3 million church. And I told him, I said, well, what is that, like ecclesial field of dreams? If you build it, they'll come? <laughs> and we were going to end up with like $3 million in debt. 
And that's his point was, he said, Russ, you never talk about money. And I said, I know. And he said, maybe you need to talk about it more. I said, I know. And I'm sure in upcoming meetings, we're going to be talking about me not talking about it enough. So I, I'm kind of covering my bases right here. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I, I hope you hear where I'm coming from. I really do. All right. Can you explain how celebration might look if you've been coaching someone? Is it verbal or attitudinal, tone of voice, or specific actions like a party, dinner out? I don't know. I'm bad at it, too. Well, you're in good company. Um, a good coach knows how to help you identify the actions you're going to take. And in the very next session, what she'll do is sit down with you and help you see the actions that you took that got the results that you wanted, as well as the actions you took that didn't. Now, both of them are unbelievably helpful. Because when you take actions and you don't get the results you want, one of two things is happening. Either you underestimated the task or overestimated your ability. And you coming to where you can actually say, OK, I'm going to take a smaller bite. I'm not going to try to bite off as much as, as I did last week. And in that very process, there's an awareness that comes into a person's life that they're actually making progress. They're not stuck. It doesn't give you this frustrating, just like, ugh, that, that angst. It just allows you to see that, okay, I, I can do this. It's just a week at a time, but I can do this. And so it, it never looks like a party. I don't throw parties. Um, and it doesn't take that long in a coaching session either. But you have to bring attention to it. You have to. Because without it, when you begin to push in, it's too, it's too dark. It's too hard. And so celebration is a really, really important thing. And I think just learning how to be sincere with people, say what's there, is, is really a rare, it's a good quality. And there's people, there's some of you that probably think you're really good at celebration, and you're not as good as you think because what you celebrate isn't that real. And they call that cheerleading. And that doesn't last. That'll give someone this euphoric experience, but it doesn't last very long. True celebration is anchored in reality. And it makes you want to do more. It makes you want to do better. I hope that helped. All right, next question. What are some things you think the true church in America might need to do, like Nehemiah, to bring glory to God, more like what happened here in Nehemiah? I think the biggest problem in the American church is that it doesn't believe the Bible. I know that's a big statement, but I don't. I don't think it does. I read stuff that Christian writers, both men and women, the stuff they write, and I wonder either if they know their Bible or if they're just suppressing it. But I don't think the church teaches the Bible. There are less than the research that's coming out of, remarkable turnaround, by the way, at Focus on the Family. Um, for all the years that James Dobson was there, it was all just centered in kind of secular psychology, to be honest with you. But over the last few years, it's radically changed, and it's a very solid organization now. But the research coming out of Focus of the Family is right now, 4% of Christians have a biblical worldview. So that means if you line 100 Christians up and you ask them a question, say, about parenting, 96 out of 100 are going to give you the ideas of the world, not the Bible. That's not, that's not right. 
The, the reason the culture is rejecting the church is that we're just a pathetic imitation of the culture anymore. We're not distinctively Christians. And you can't, you can't be unless you're studying your Bible. Now, that doesn't mean simply reading. Um, Larry Osborne, in his Contrarian's Guide to Spirituality, he, he, he posed this question that really took me aback at one point. It, he said, at what point did reading become the quintessential measurement of Christian maturity? He said it wasn't in the first century because barely any of them could read. And that's true. And so I've started this last, this, my present go-round in reading the Bible. I'm listening to Max McLean's version of it. If you go to BibleGateway.com, you can just listen to it every day. And so I listen to him. He's got a killer voice. I would kill for his voice. Um, but he, he reads the scripture. And it, as, as he's reading it, I read it along. It's the best thing I've done in years. It changes. Even his tonal inflection causes me to think differently about the context, especially in the New, in the New Testament. So um, I, I think that there's some things that the church needs to do. But if it started simply by saying, we are going to teach you your Bibles. If we don't do anything else, we've done our job. I think it would be a remarkable turnaround for the church. But you see, we've majored on so many other things. We're, we're great at a lot of things, but we're not very good when it comes to the Bible. All right, last question. Max McLean. Max McLean. And he reads that BibleGateway.com, and there's a whole bunch of Bibles you can choose from, and he, his is the ESV by Max McLean. And you don't have to buy it. I, I just sit at my desk and listen to it with my headphones. My wife thinks I'm addicted to something else now. Um, because I just sit there and listen to it all, for so long. But uh, truly remarkable. Amazing, amazing insight as he reads it. Those of you that are readers, cue into that. His enunciation of all these hard words blows me away. There's no way on earth. You know how I stumble over those words. But uh, yeah, remarkable guy for sure. So anyway. All right, let's pray. We're going to take communion now. Um, we've got one last sermon coming up next week in this series um, this is an important series. I, I, I appreciate those of you that have stuck it out through this series. So let's pray and we'll uh, prepare for communion. Lord, I would ask that we've talked about some hard things. I've been kind of as candid as I would be as a husband or a father or just a friend. This ministry means a lot to a lot of people. There, have, there are people sitting in this room right now that have been a part of this church for 25 years. There's people in this room that have been a part of this church for 25 days. But in the end of the day, this church is either doing something that needs to be done or it isn't. And if we are trying to do something that needs to be done, then we're all going to have to put our hands to the plow. I don't think it's at all that strange if we met a new acquaintance at school or on the job or even a neighbor and we started some rhythm of going to coffee or having lunch together. And if we went out a half a dozen times and the never, that other person never offered to pay, I think most of us would probably withdraw from that relationship. It just is too lopsided. But for some reason or another, there's a, there's a big group of us, not just in the church in general, in this church, that can go week after week without sacrificially supporting 
whether it's our time, whether it's the resources that we contribute, the checks that we drop into the kiosk or send into the church, we need to carry our weight. And it's always been like that. Since we played on the football team in college, in high school, since, since we did projects in biology when we were in, in grade school, we always had to carry our weight. And so why it baffles me why we could be undertaking, how we could be undertaking something that's so needed in this city and so many people not care, not believe in it deeply. I pray you would stir our hearts. I pray that this would be the, a moment of meditation before our communion where we would really consider whether we have been the so supporters that we need to be to see the things that need to be done. So, Lord, bless us in these moments, I pray. I, I, I would ask that these moments of the close of our service in both communion as well as our worship would be honorable to you. We commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.